Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful for uh, musicians who lead us that are not so enamored with their musical talents that they drown out our voices. Uh, In this day and time that we live in, I need to hear God's people singing things like that. I need to hear that more than I need to hear uh, notes of music. I'm thankful for the accompaniment of the music and the great gift of God of music. But man, we need to hear each other's voices. And I'm thankful for music leaders that allow that to happen. So let's say our uh, life verse together. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Romans 6, verse 4. Let's say it together. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we're back in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, picking it up where we left off a few weeks ago, uh, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 3, listen as I read these verses. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the joy of singing your truth and singing our commitment to you and to that truth. We thank you for the joy of singing our gratitude and singing our dependence upon you and singing the glory of your name. May our voices grow stronger as each day passes. We thank you for the precious voice of your word that speaks to us from the pages of the Bible. Give us ears to hear this morning, Father. Give us hearts to embrace what you want to say to us today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together, corporately, will be pleasing in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. We're back in 1 Peter. Uh, When we were here last, if you remember, we were focusing on verse 10 and we were talking about loving life and seeing good days. And so just to kind of get us back in the flow of our study of 1 Peter Let's just do a quick review there. We were stressing that the Christian has great reasons to love his or her life, no matter what's going on in the world around them. And we made four basic points there. We said that uh, as a Christian, uh, 
You can love your life because it's a redeemed life. It's redeemed. It's saved. It's born again. You don't have to worry about going to hell. Your biggest problem has been taken care of. Secondly, we said you can love your life no matter what because you have the opportunity that unsaved people do not have of knowing your creator. Jesus said this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. So we can love our life because we get to know God more intimately, day by day, moment by moment. Thirdly, we said that you can love your life because you've been given the great privilege of being an ambassador for the King of Kings. You represent Jesus, dear believer. You represent the one who created you. You represent the one who saved you by his blood. You are his ambassador. No government ambassador trumps that. You are the ambassador of the King of creation. And therefore, you can love your life. And finally, we said you can love your life because you're not living it alone. Look around you. You're not living it alone. You're a part of the body of Christ. You share with other redeemed people the things that really ultimately matter. Like knowing God. Like representing Jesus. The things that really, really matter. And then we added that seeing good days greatly depends on how you define good days. If you focus on the ultimate good, which is to become more like Jesus, then a good day can be a day filled with trials and hardships and tribulations because God uses those things to make us more like Jesus. In fact, he probably uses those things more in making us more like Jesus than easy days than days filled with blessings that we would call good. God truly does work all things for good. And the ultimate good, according to Romans 8, 28, 29, is being conformed to the image of God's Son. So for the Christian, a good day is a day when you've been made a little bit more like Jesus. And so I'm praying this will be a good day. This will be a good 45 minutes for you right here. I pray that God will use his word to sanctify us as we behold Jesus in his word. He will will make us more like him. But again, God more often than not uses hardships and trials to do that. According to verses like James 1 and verse 2. Listen, when when we're thinking like that, now when we're thinking like that and not just focused on comfort and ease and, and happiness and things being uh, going well, whatever, however we might define that, when we're thinking like this, when we're thinking biblically, when we're thinking like Paul who said things like uh, this momentary affliction, this temporary affliction is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. When we're thinking like that, thinking biblically, When we are focusing on the fact that God is making us like Jesus and that that is the most important thing in life. Maybe that's an examination we all need to make of ourselves. Is that the most important thing in your life? Is becoming more like Jesus, is that the most important thing for you today? 
Is, is that how we started our day this morning in our private personal prayer? God, make me more like Jesus today. Well, when that's dominating our thinking, when that's the most important thing to us, guess what happens? When we're thinking like that, then the blessings that God gives us, like family, friends, church family, grandchildren, precious times together, etc., they, they really do blow us away and fill us with joy. And gratitude because we weren't expecting them. We were focused on wanting to become more like Jesus more than anything else. And so when God brings these other blessings, these secondary blessings that we realize that we never really deserved, all we deserved was hell. The wages of sin is separation from God forever. The wages of sin is death. But when we're focused on becoming more like Jesus and longing for that and begging God to do that in our life, then all these secondary blessings really become precious to us. In other words, I'm I'm probably having a hard time saying what I'm trying to say here. The more we're focused on our spiritual life and our spiritual needs, which God has promised to meet, okay, He's promised to meet those. Then the more thankful we will be for the material blessings that God chooses to give us over and above our daily bread. Okay? Necessities is all that God has promised. And when we're focused on those, then the non-necessities that he lavishes upon us become sweeter. I hope that makes sense to you. I pray that I'm communicating what I really want to communicate this morning. I guess it all comes down to one of my favorite principles that I've really just learned in the last two or three years. I forgot where I saw this. I think it was, might have been Tozer, but he said, blessed is he who expects nothing materially. Blessed is he who expects nothing for he will enjoy everything. And don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to enjoy everything that God chooses to give you? Things that you don't deserve. Well, it begins by expecting none of it. Then you will enjoy everything. I love that. Okay, let's continue our study of this great letter uh, but before we do that, before got to do one more thing today, because today is a very important historical day, okay? Uh, a, a very important historical day. Who knows what it is? R- raise your hand if you know what it is. Carol knows what it is. Yeah, cause, yeah okay. Yes, Amy knows what it is. Ty knows what it is. Anybody else? Very more, imp- Donna knows what it is, okay? Yes, Melanie knows what it is. Okay, on this day, 500 years ago, this is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's stand, of his statement to the uh, political leaders and church leaders that, that he wasn't going to recant. Just to, to re- refresh your memory, uh, on April 17th, the day before this day, 1521, 
Martin Luther was called to the city of Worms to meet with church and political leaders to answer for his teachings on justification and indulgences and other topics. After being given, when he got there, he was kind of overwhelmed and he asked for one night to think about it. He asked for an extra night and they granted that. So on the following day, after spending a, a, whole, a whole, pretty much a whole night in prayer, wrestling with God, begging God to be with him, ending by saying, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. Save me from this particular instance. Because he knew what was facing him. He'd already been excommunicated. And now he, he had to decide, was he going to recant and get back in the good graces of church leadership or what? And so after that long night, on the following day, the 18th, April 18th, 1521, exactly 500 years ago, he made his famous stand. And since you're in a Reformed church, some of you, most of you here, uh, most of the members know this history, or you should. You know, it began with the church uh, having a big financial debt due to massive building programs, uh, and the Pope needed to pay for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, so they started selling forgiveness. Indulgences, they call them. They would sell indulgences. People could pay money and get a piece of paper saying they, they were forgiven and it would reduce their time in purgatory. They could, even, they could even get dead relatives out of purgatory you know, by buying indulgences and, and giving the church money. And that just riled Luther up. Okay, And that led to the posting of the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg, uh, in, uh, in 1517, four years earlier, October 31st, okay? And then between the posting of the theses and the diet here at Worms, the meeting, like diet just means a meeting, a, a conference, a convocation. In those four years there, there was a lot of disputes, debates uh, between Luther and representatives of the church, like Johann Eck, he was the big church debater on the church side. And they would have these disputes and debates, ultimately leading to Luther's excommunication. He was kicked out of the church. So finally, he was, he was given a chance to recant his teachings and his, his books and his views. Uh, and there are debates about his exact words because apparently... Uh, I guess people thought he was just going to recant and be done with it. Nobody realized how big a day this was going to be. And so apparently no one was recording it in the moment. So you'll read a lot of different variations of this statement. All, all saying ultimately the same thing. But the wording will be different in the things that you read. But, but here's basically what he said 500 years ago on this day. And I read it today, and I'm, in fact, I included it in the title of this message. The title of this message is, Here We Stand, Living Faithfully in a Hostile World. I don't know if we're going to have a Luther-like moment. We might, the, the way it looks like some of the things are going. But we, we need to be reminded of what Luther said, because we might need to be saying 
something like this in the not too near distant future. Here's what he said 500 years ago on this day. Since your most serene majesty and high mightinesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is like this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because, because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. Aren't you thankful our leaders have never been inconsistent? Okay, that's another message for another day. Okay, let me continue with Luther's statement. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I'm not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And that was the beginning. Well, really the thesis was the beginning, but that, that planted the flag. That planted the flag for basically who we are as Protestants. Every Protestant should know this history. You should know from which you sprung as a church member. Here's where the line was, was drawn in the sand. I'm not recanting. I will not retract a single thing unless I'm convinced by Scripture and reason from Scripture, based on Scripture. Beloved, I, I, I think a day's coming for, for the church, similar to this. We live in a day where the chances of us being demanded to recant what we believe seem to be steadily increasing. Saw recently where uh, the NCAA will not allow states to host championships uh, where in states where they pass laws protecting females in sports. No championships for you guys unless you recant what you believe about sexuality, males and females. It's coming. We got to be ready. Our kids have got to be ready. We can't brush this off. We can't nap through this. We've got to be ready. Here we stand, living faithfully in a hostile world. In today's text, I believe we find five requirements for living in a hostile world. These qualities are necessary if we're going to stand strong. Here they are. Let me give you all five of them. We're just going to do two today, and God willing, if I'm 
still alive, three next week. Okay? But here they, here are, here's all five of them. In verse 13, we're going to have to have an undying zeal for goodness. An undying zeal for goodness. In verse 14, we're going to have to have an unwavering boldness in persecution. We can't back down from persecution if it comes, if it comes. In verse 15a, we, we've got to have, it is required for us to have an unrivaled devotion to Jesus. We must sanctify him, set him apart as Lord in our hearts. 15b, we've got to have an unashamed readiness to defend the truth. An unashamed readiness to defend the truth. Verbally, it's not going to be enough to say, okay, yeah, I, I, believe, I believe what the Bible teaches, but I just can't, I just can't go public with it because I, want, I, I, I don't want to be persecuted. I want everybody to like me. That won't cut it. That won't cut it. You know what? That's probably the largest segment of the evangelical church today. They believe what's here, but they're just not going to go public with it because they don't want to be harassed. They don't want to be canceled. They don't want to be persecuted. And then finally, in verse 16, we've got, we're going to have to have an uncompromising lifestyle of consistent integrity. An uncompromising lifestyle of consistent integrity. Okay, let's, we're going to consider the first two today. And uh, like I said, Lord willing, we'll unpack the last three next Sunday if we're here. Okay, basic requirements for living in a hostile world, part one. Number one, we got to have an undying zeal for goodness. An undying zeal for goodness. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Verse 13 is a rhetorical question. Scripture writers like to do this. Paul did this a lot. We see this kind of like the questions we, we, we would read in Romans Chapter 8, toward the end of the chapter. Remember those questions when we studied that book? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question. The answer, nobody really. Nobody. Oh yeah, they can physically harm us. They can come against us. But ultimately, if God's for us, we're going we're, we're to win. We win. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer to all those questions, and this one in verse 13, is ultimately, key word, ultimately, no one. No one can ultimately harm us or stand against us. In the end, we win. They might kill the body, but they can't harm our soul. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples? Some of you will be put to death for believing in me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Isn't that, a, isn't that an amazing statement? Some of, most of you are going to die for me, but take heart, not a hair of your head will perish. You will be with me in paradise. As Jesus said, he will never leave us or forsake us. Not a hair of our head will perish, no matter what happens to us physically in this life. 
This is the point. Peter is not saying there's no chance of physical harm. In fact, the very next verse, verse 14, he acknowledges the possibility, even if you should suffer. He acknowledges that physical harm, physical suffering is a possibility. It's like the, the commentator Simon Kistemacher said, quote, he is teaching the readers that if they suffer physically or mentally for Christ's sake, they will not lose because God does not forsake them. And even the rest of verse 14, he even promises to bless them. You will be blessed. So have no fear nor be troubled. H.D.M. Spence adds this, quote, none can do real harm to the Lord's people. They may persecute them, but he will make all things work together for their good. Do you believe that, beloved? You should. <laughs> now, let's focus on the word that's the key here. Zealous. Zealous. I, I, I stated that we have to have, a, we're going to have, if we're going to stand like Luther, we're going to have to have an undying zeal for goodness. Now, the word zealous here in the English translation, it's translated as an adjective, okay? Zealous is an adjective. But in the Greek, in the Greek, it's literally a noun. It's a noun in the Greek. So a literal translation would be, if you become a zealot for what is good. A zealot for what is good. This implies being fervent about doing good. It refers to being uncompromising on what is good and right and pure and honorable. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 11. One of my favorite verses, do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Chuck Swindoll said that this hard attitude is, quote, characterized by active optimism and energetic zeal that cannot be contained. It's the very opposite of lethargy and indifference. In other words, we are not indifferent about what is good. We are not nonchalant and apathetic about what is right before the eyes of God. We are energetically and enthusiastically zealous for what is good. We're, we're not sleepy about it. We're zealous for it. We're energetic about it. So let me ask you a question this morning as we prepare to come to the table here in a few minutes. How would people describe you? How would people describe you? How, how would you describe yourself? As a person with active optimism, as a person with energetic zeal, a, a person who earnestly longs to promote goodness, or as lethargic, apathetic, sleepyhead, nonchalant, indifferent when it comes to the things of God, kind of out there on the periphery, 
when it comes to the things of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in church, but when it really gets down to it, I'm just kind of there. You know, I'm just kind of out there. Would you be described as a person who is zealous about things that the Bible would call good in, in a very real sense? And, and goodness as defined by the Bible would be things that honor God, things that glorify God, things that please God. Like, oh, being a Christian. That's a good place to start. Someone who loves being saved. Someone who loves having been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Someone who loves being owned by God. As someone who is, as Titus 2.14 says, zealous for good works that glorify Jesus. So, whether it be zealously serving in the church and edifying and encouraging others, or zealously raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, or, or zealously proclaiming the gospel to lost sinners, or, or zealously teaching others the word of God, or zealously singing the glory of God's name, or zealously putting others first and loving them with brotherly affection, or, or zealously honoring others above myself, or zealously fighting the good fight of faith, or zealously battling against sin, or whatever aspect of the Christian life it may be. The question we all need to ask ourselves this morning based on this text is this. Would I be characterized as a person who is a zealot for goodness? Am I zealous for the things that glorify God? Am I a zealot for doing, just doing the right thing? Would I be a, considered a person who is characterized by active optimism and energetic zeal that cannot be contained? And not, don't come with, oh, well, I'm just a quiet person. No, you, you can be quiet and zealous. You don't have to be loud to be zealous. Okay, so we're not talking about quietness versus loudness. We're not talking about introvert versus extrovert. Okay, you can be a zealous introvert. There are ways to do that. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. I love what he said. Quote, it's a puzzle to me how anyone can take on the most important business of all, the business of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and do it in a passive, apathetic, part-time, or slovenly manner. Yet many do. What we should do is follow after Jesus Christ with all our hearts and minds and with all the energy at our disposal. Are we doing that? That's the big question for today. And did you realize, you know, um, I think Paul somewhere, I can't recall the verse right now, but he, he exhorted us to be imitators of God. Did you realize that zeal 
is a godlike trait. Let me just give you some examples from Scripture. Consider these texts. 2 Kings 19.31, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. In other words, God is zealous in saving and guiding his elect remnant. He's zealous in his leadership over us. First in bringing us into his family, and then in guiding us and directing us. He's zealous about that. The zeal of the Lord will do this. How about Psalm 69.9? For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. John quoted this text when Jesus cleared the temple of the buyers and sellers. In other words, Jesus, God in the flesh, was zealous when it came to the purity and integrity of the house of his Father. What are your thoughts about church? Isaiah 26, 11, O Lord, your hand, your, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them, speaking of the wicked, that's the context, let the wicked see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. God is zealous for his church. He is zealous for us. He rejoices over us with singing, with loud singing. He's zealous for his people. How about Isaiah 42, 13? The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. In the past, God's enemies have experienced his zeal against them. We could cite many examples. Pharaoh. Pharaoh's army, drowning in the Red Sea. The golden calf worshipers, destroyed on that very day when they thought they were worshiping the true God. The grumblers who were swallowed up by the earth. The inhabitants of Jericho, etc. We could go on and on. And guess what? One day, every single enemy of God will face his mighty zeal for justice. One day. One day. In Isaiah 59, verses 14 to 18, we get the picture of God as a mighty warrior coming against wickedness and evil who has, according to Scripture, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What a, what a metaphor, what a, what a picture. God has wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then I'll end here, this beautiful text that we read every December. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal 
of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God is zealous to save his people, to rescue his people, to deliver his people, to redeem his people. And he demonstrated that zeal by sending his only begotten son. So, do we demonstrate the godlike quality of zeal? Are we a zealot for goodness? Are we zealous for doing what is right as defined by God? Are we zealous for defending marriage? When it comes to zealously living for the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ, are we into it with all that we are? (laughs) Or, or, Or are we just bumps on the peripheral log of churchdom. Think about it. Think about it this week. Do a, do a zeal inventory. Secondly, verse 14. Not only are we going to need a, a, an undying zeal for goodness if we're going to stand in this day, we're going to need an unwavering boldness in persecution. An unwavering boldness in persecution, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Remember, the whole context of this letter is, is, is aliens, Christians that Peter called aliens, living in a hostile environment. That's, that's the whole context for the, for the whole letter, for both of these letters. Okay. Uh, So Peter, in verse 14, is preparing us, preparing his readers, those then and us now, for life in the real world. Jesus taught them that every Christian faces this very real possibility in their life on this planet if if they are true to the Word of God. Now, the, the compromisers can slide by. But if we're true to the Word of God, this is a very real possibility in, in any age. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And at the end of the verse, Peter is probably remembering what Jesus said to them in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's what Peter says. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Yeah, they, they might kill you. They might lock you up. But they can't touch your soul. Your soul is safe. Your soul is with me. This lack of fear reflects the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 118. 
Verses 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. That day's coming for all of us. We shall look in triumph on those who hated us in this world. We'll pick up here next week, but I want to give you some questions to wrap up today, and then I'm going to ask the, uh, the praise team to come, and we don't normally do this, but I want an immediate uh, musical response to this message, even before we come to the table. But here, here, here's some questions for you to prepare for communion with Jesus. Are you ready for the hostility that may come to us who believe in Jesus and who uncompromisingly adhere to his teachings? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to defend biblical sexuality and biblical marriage? Are you willing to speak the truth in love with grace no matter what? Are you banking all you are on who God is and what he has said clearly in his word? Are you trusting Jesus to save you and keep you? Are you willing to live for him and for his glory no matter what? We began this morning with Martin Luther. He was willing to do that. And having begun with him, let's end with him. So music team, you can start making your way up here now. And I want, to, I want you to really listen this morning like you never have. You've heard this song many times. But listen to the words like you never have. Sing them if you mean them. Sing them like you never have. These words were written for such a time as this. Words like, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Just like verse 14 says, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go. They're temporary. Ultimately, they don't really matter. They may bring us happiness now, but they're temporary. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, they may kill us. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let's sing like kingdom people in response to what God's saying to us today.